Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is the New Books Network. We are joined today by Robert J. Mrazek. He graduated from Cornell University, went to the U.S. Navy, served five terms in Congress. I believe it was the third district in New York around Long Island. Is that correct? Correct. And and he is the author of 11 books, and he joins us today to discuss his latest work. The title is... The Indomitable Florence Finch, The Untold Story of a War Widow Turned Resistance Fighter and Savior of American POWs. Robert, thanks so much for joining us on the New Books Network. I'm glad to be with you, man. So when we think about resistance fighters, the classic example from World War II, of course, is the French resistance that we're familiar with. But this is a story from the Philippines. And what I want to do is just uh, ask you to just tell us who Florence Finch was. Sure. You know, uh, thousands and thousands of books have been written about World War II and about men at war. I've written a couple of them myself, which were, I I, I think, uh, pretty evocative of the time and place. But there aren't a lot of stories written about women during World War II. And Florence Finch was was not only a war hero, uh, she was one of the most decorated American women in the Second World War for saving hundreds of American lives, prisoners of war, Americans who had surrendered after the Bataan and Corregidor defeats, after the Bataan death march. Uh, Florence saved hundreds of them. After the war, President Truman Uh, gave her the Medal of Freedom, the highest award that a citizen can receive for serving the United States of America. And I think you could ask the question, why don't we know all about Florence Finch? Well, the answer is she never told anybody, including her own children. Uh, You know, we live in a time where celebrities are celebrated for becoming celebrities without having achieved anything of substance. And one of the most remarkable things about Florence Finch was she had a a deep sense of humility um, and was always looking forward. And so after the war, she went on with her life. Uh, Her first husband had been killed during the Battle of Bataan. Uh, He was uh, given by MacArthur the Distinguished Service Cross, which is the second highest award for valor to the Medal of Honor. Uh, She remarried for the second time after the war. And 50 years later, 1995, uh, again, her children, now adults, having known nothing about what she had done, uh, the United States Coast Guard uh, contacted Florence and said, we're going to be naming our new Pacific headquarters after you. And her kids, Betty and, and Bobby said, you know, mom, what's going on here? What, you know, what is involved? 
They didn't know she'd been married before or what she had done or that she had earned the Medal of Freedom. And uh, it, it led to her uh, living to the age of 101 in Ithaca, New York. And I learned about the story through reading the obituary, a very long obituary in the New York Times written by Sam Roberts. And the story was just so compelling that uh, thankfully uh, her children gave me the key to the Florence archives. She was a very prolific letter writer. And, and uh, so I was able to tell the story. So her story begins in, she's born in 1915. Uh, in the Philippines. She is, as you note, a mestizo. Can you explain what that is in her? She has a rather unique family situation, to put it mildly, right? Yeah, fascinating. Right out of Charles Dickens, Ian. Uh, you know, one of the things when I got started researching the book and I talked to her, her you know, adult grown children, um, and they had plenty of information about everything that, that Florence endured in her life uh, from the time she was seven years old and went away to school, never to return home. But she claimed to have no memories of her early childhood. And it wasn't until I was researching legal files in the Philippines that I came upon the legal records of a battle over an estate that was owned by her father and that is what led to the uh, revelation of what she endured in her early childhood. Her father, uh, Charles Ebersol, uh, volunteered for the United States Army as a kid. He was underage. He was from Buffalo, New York. And he became a medic during the Spanish-American War and the defeat of the insurrectionists in the Philippines um, after uh, Teddy Roosevelt rode up San Juan Hill with the Rough Riders and the Cuban side of it was, was over. Uh, Spain, of course, had the, the Philippines as uh, one of their conquests. For 300 years, they, they administered the, the Philippines and then they were defeated by the Americans and we took over. But after that war ended, Charlie decided he did not want to go back to Buffalo. He was in love with the country. He was very smart, very ambitious within a few years because there were, now it was an American occupation and American money was going in to build schools and roads and hospitals. Uh, and he did a bit of that, um, but he bought a plantation. It was a very successful plantation, ran almost a mile along the Kalau River in Isabella province. And he met a young woman named Maria Hermoso. Um, and Maria, uh, was a, a lovely Philippine woman who was married, unfortunately, from Charlie's perspective, and had a, had a, had a small daughter named Flaviana. Uh, Charlie asked her to leave her husband, live with him, although they couldn't be legally married, and she agreed to do that. And they had four, five children together. Florence was the fourth child. Um, when Florence was seven years old, um, Flaviana had, grown to be a lovely, lovely younger version of her mother, also quite more sophisticated because uh, Charlie believed very much in education. And so she was, uh, had learned to read at an early age and she was a more sophisticated version of her mother and beautiful. 
she decided to get married, um, which didn't sit well with Charlie. And a couple of months after their marriage, he rode to their village on horseback, told her, I want you to live with me as my wife. So Mer this, this was Florence's stepsister and Charlie's stepdaughter. And so he told Maria, Florence's mother, you will live in the first little house we had here on the plantation. Well, Flaviana and I are gonna live in the big plantation house. And they had a number of children together. Um, and it, it all blew up when, when Florence was seven and her mother uh, basically went loco in the local terminology and began beating her children as if they were somehow responsible for the breakup of her relationship with Charlie. And it was at that time that Charlie took aside Florence and her si older sister Norma and said, I'm sending you away to a new school of the Union Church Hall School in Manila, which was created for mestizos, those being half Philippine and half American. And she went to that school at the age of seven and never went back to the plantation. And she lived there for the next 10 years of her life, being a very uh, self, becoming a very self-reliant young woman, um, basically on her own. Her sister, older sister Norma did not like the school and she left. So Florence was on her own from the age of seven to 17 at that school, um, accomplished in every way number one in her class uh, in all subjects. Uh, she also took great pride in mentoring the younger mestizos who were treated with a good deal of bigotry and pity on the part of the uh, religious people who, who ran the school, many of whom you know, looked upon them as tar babies and uh, you know, needed, uh, needed this kind of, of help. So that, that's basically how she started in life. And so she's, um, she's very bright. Uh, she skips a couple of grades, if I recall correctly, and she's uh, very bookish, which is uh, probably unique in the school setting at that time. Yeah, and she can thank her father for that. He, he had a library, substantial library at the plantation, and he encouraged his children to read from a very early age and Florence being very bright and loved uh, to be carried away in her imagination to different places with the books that she read. So she really had a good head start when she got to the school. And so eventually she will grow into a young woman and she'll meet a man named Charles Edward Smith referred to as Bing. B-I-N-G, Bing Smith, and uh, explain how they meet and, and what happens with them. Yeah, um, Charles Smith um, was a, an agent uh, for Naval Intelligence in Manila. Uh, he was called Bing because he had an uncanny resemblance to the great crooner, Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby was a, a, a small man. Um, Bing Smith was over six feet, very athletic, he was the star pitcher on the Pacific All Fleet Navy baseball team, uh, larger than life personality. And when he first met uh, Florence, she was the de facto manager of the 
Army Navy YMCA in Manila, which was a huge organization. Uh, you know, we, we controlled uh, not only the Philippines, but we had the Pacific Fleet all over the Far East. And the Army Navy YMCA had hundreds of rooms so that uh, Naval and Army uh, officers and men could stay there. And, and so it was a big operation. And, and she was the top assistant for the man who ran the Army Navy YMCA, who was in love with Florence at the time, H.J. Schofield. Anyway, Bing met her. Um, and, uh, you know, they began going together. She was a much more sheltered person than Bing, who was Again, a, a guy who had seen it all. I'd been in the Navy for a number of years. And uh, he got her a job working for the deputy head of Army Intelligence, a Lieutenant Colonel named Carl Engelhart. Uh, he was, uh, again, this was the intelligence gathering for the American Army in the Philippines. And Engelhart needed a bright assistant who was willing to work hard. And he hired uh, Florence uh, to be his one of his uh, team, intelligence team uh, there in Manila. And uh, as the war approached, um, she and Ben got married about six months before Pearl Harbor, the attack on Pearl Harbor. And uh, it, it became uh, more and more obvious that the Japanese were, were planning, uh, in addition to their invasion of China, which had taken place four years earlier, that they were on the move. And Engelhart, a brilliant intelligence officer, kept sending up uh, intelligence to General MacArthur through his head of intelligence, a, a, a colonel named Willoughby, Charles Willoughby, whose real name was Adolf Weidenbach, or his birth name. Uh, he loved Mussolini. Uh, MacArthur referred to him as his pet fascist. And Engelhart was suggesting that an invasion by the Japanese was imminent. Uh, Willoughby refused to believe it. But uh, within 12 hours of the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Japanese attacked the Philippines and an invasion force followed there very quickly. So um, this is often a part of uh, this entire period of history. It's often in the shadow of the attack on Pearl Harbor. We often think of the attack in Hawaii as a single event, but it's really part of a large coordinated pan-Pacific effort by the Japanese military to essentially knock out all points of resistance in one fell swoop. And so this is uh, going to have, things are going to happen quickly throughout December. Um, as you note, uh, she's, uh, Fl Florence has been working in this office of naval intelligence. She is essentially uh, does she have um, does she have dual citizenship at this point, or is yes that was that was one of the gifts bestowed by Charlie. He made sure that his children with Maria uh, received passports and were acknowledged to be American citizens. So she was both an American citizen and a citizen of the Philippines. And so she is uh, one of the things that struck me about her character that's obvious from the get-go is that uh, she is very dedicated. In other words, she cares a great deal about what she has promised to do. And when uh, Engelhart and Smith, her husband, Bing Smith, her husband, uh, 
move along with the rest of the American military to the Bataan Peninsula. She is left behind in Manila um, with whatever cash Smith has, but eventually she's going to have to get a job. And um, I was struck by uh, her dedication to her prior job when she got the new job. So you might want to explain uh, what her plight is in Manila when she's left behind there. Yeah, on Christmas Eve, 1941, um, the uh, Americans were in full retreat down the Bataan Peninsula. And MacArthur ordered that the Bataan Peninsula should still be defended, but that the remaining uh, people on his staff would go to Corregidor. So Engelhardt, Colonel Engelhardt and uh, and Bing Smith went to the fortress at Corregidor. And from there, uh, MacArthur directed the defense of the Philippines against the Japanese Army and Air Force. Um, Bataan fell first. The Bataan uh, Peninsula was, was, was taken by the Japanese. The Americans still held this island of Corregidor. It was considered a a powerful fortress, but the Japanese bombed it into submission. And by that time, uh, Bang had been killed, saving a crewmate uh, on a mission uh, to help relieve the troops on Bataan. Um, Florence did not know he was killed. MacArthur then gave him uh, that citation for the Distinguished Service Cross posthumously. When Singapore fell, Engelhardt, who was fluent in Japanese because he had been a military attache in Tokyo for three years. Um, and so when the Japanese took uh, Corregidor, uh, they learned that he spoke fluent Japanese and he was giving tours to uh, high military brass, Japanese brass of, of, of the fortress. And one of them, uh, turned out to be a member of the Japanese royal family, a prince. And he was very struck by how fluent uh, Engelhardt was in Japanese. And at one point pulled him aside and said, you're going to be a prisoner of war, but is there anything I can do for you? And Engelhardt said, yes, there's a young widow who doesn't know she's a widow who used to work for me. And I was wondering if you could present her with the citation that her husband earned for saving his crew and, uh, and being killed. And the Japanese prince agreed to do that. And a few days later, he knocked on the door where Florence was living and showed her the citation. And it was at that point that she learned that she was a widow. And it led to her making a commitment to herself that she would do whatever she could do to help defeat the Japanese occupying authority. She wasn't sure what that would involve, but it was a commitment she made at that time. And shortly thereafter, she learned about a job that was available at the Philippine Liquid Fuel Union. And the Philippine Liquid Fuel Union was the uh, organization that basically dispensed all gasoline, diesel fuel, kerosene, all liquid fuel to the Japanese army and Navy. And if there was any leftover and there were supplies left over, it was rationed out to Philippine citizens and businesses and so forth. 
Um, some months after taking the job, Florence learned about uh, people who were falsifying warehouse receipts and, uh, and fuel coupons. And it was one of her jobs to fill out these coupons, the official coupons and warehouse receipts. Um, and by then she had learned that Engelhart was still alive, uh, living uh, in Cabana Tuan at, a, at the big prison camp that had tens of thousands of Americans who had survived Corregidor and Batan. But they were dying by the hundreds every week, 500, 600 a week, starving, without food, without medicine. And there was an underground communication system created and she was able to get a message to, to Engelhart and he wrote back, we are desperate for food, we are desperate for medicine. And it was then that Florence concocted her plan to begin transferring fuel by falsifying warehouse receipts and fuel coupons, selling it on the black market and using the money to send food and medicine into the camp to, to save not only Engelhart, but through Engelhart, uh, many, many other POWs who were close to death. And that was what she began. And she did for two and a half years working at the fuel union under 98 Japanese officers uh, under their noses and stealing eventually tons of fuel and using it to save Americans. And so I, I should note, uh, this is a story about Florence Finch, but in many ways, this is kind of a dual biography of Carl Engelhart and his experiences as well, because uh, he wrote a, his own memoir that's uh, to date still unpublished, correct? Yes, that's correct. He gave the, he gave the 300 page memoir to, uh, uh, to Florence shortly before he died. Yeah. And so thankfully, I, I mean, without it, I would have had a far less potent story. Uh, it, it was very understated, but he kept a, a journal and a spiral notebook of uh, the men dying by the hundreds and um, what, what occurred in the camp uh, under the Japanese, and of course, what Florence did to save so many of them. So one, one aspect of this I was struck by was this courier system that's developed to actually get medicine and food into from outside the camp into the camp. Do we do we have a sense for exactly how this functioned in terms of how people were able to actually get this? Because it was amazing to me that these guys are able, it saves their lives. And so they obviously are not going to die as quickly as they would have. Uh, many still do die because of the horrible treatment by the Japanese overseers. But nevertheless, these people are saved. It was just amazing to me that they were able to accomplish it under the nose of these prison guards. Yeah, one of the American prisoners fairly early on uh, was assigned a job where uh, Filipinos driving caribou, which in essentially oxen, uh, would bring the supplies into the Japanese uh, camp at Cabana Tuan and also the food supplies that were eventually brought in to, to feed the American prisoners. 
And he was able to bribe the Filipinos who were bringing um, the oxen to the, to the camp. And they secreted in these carts, in these ox carts, the food and medicine that then was diverted to the Americans. And it, it worked very well for quite some time. Uh, eventually, they were discovered. And uh, a number of the Americans who were involved with it were put to death by the Japanese. But in the meantime, um, the uh, food and medicine that really allowed them to to uh, slow down the number of deaths was coming in on a regular basis, not only through Florence, but through others who were also committed to trying to help the, the Americans. Also in the camps, as you note, or as Engelhardt notes, um, there's a lot of bribery that's going on with the um, American prisoners bribing guards to get a variety of different privileges or get away with things. And some of this, the ability to engage in the bribery is part of the money that Florence and others are sending uh, to these prisoners, right? That's absolutely correct, Ian. And Engelhardt, again, being fluent in Japanese, was able to be uh, the conduit for uh, bribing the Japanese guards and figuring out ways to uh, enable the the flow of, of goods, if you will, into the into the camp, he was also able to save a number of American lives because the Japanese routinely and capriciously would at times decide to beat uh, a prisoner to death. And and Engelhardt again and again was able to to uh, uh, intervene and and to save a, a lot of Americans that way. And so this goes on, this uh, system of falsifying orders for fuel, and then her cohorts, uh, this is really an organized resistance because her cohorts go to different, there's not one disposal or distribution point, there are multiple points around the air, in the area in the Philippines, and so they, they take this fuel and they sell it on the black market, um, that's where they get the cash from. And to me, what was one of the amazing aspects of this is she seems to be the real focal point because it's her requisition orders. In other words, she's the one who falsifies the records. And then she has to get back early when those records come in every week to find the ones that she has falsified in order to destroy them so that she can try to keep the system going and not have it recognized that these are false orders. Exactly right. Um, it was very dangerous. She would have to come in very early on a Monday when these vouchers would come back from the various dispersal points and find the falsified coupons. The reason she needed to do that was otherwise the Japanese immediately would have known that hundreds of gallons of fuel was lost in, in, in that period of time. And uh, so she was able to successfully do that for two and a half years. Uh, she ended up also helping the underground and diverting fuel that they picked up uh, using the falsified warehouse receipts for larger quantities of it. And that was utilized for the resistance against the Japanese. There were thousands of Filipinos who were actively involved with the resistance um, against the occupying authority. 
but in October of 1944, um, a courier representing Florence was, was, was captured by the Japanese while bringing smuggling food into the, into the camp and under torture revealed Florence's name as someone who was a leader of the uh, organization, the underground organization. And so she was arrested by the Japanese uh, in Manila and taken to what was called the airport studio. It was a former Japanese owned photographic studio which had been turned into a, uh, a jail and torture center by the Kempe Tai. The Kempe Tai was the Japanese secret police. Uh, they had supreme power, they could arrest Japanese army officers, they could arrest anyone, they could torture anyone, they could murder anyone. And they put Florence in a two by four foot cell and kept her there while they were torturing her with electronic devices and other me methods, beatings and so forth. But she refused to disclose the names of any of the people she was working with. She finally confessed that she was involved, but uh, uh, refused to, to compromise any of those who were with her in the network. And so while she is kept at this uh, location and continually repeatedly interrogated, she is worn down. She's a, at one point, she's even raped. Um, and she will eventually be transferred to a rural area um, uh, another holding area outside of Manila. Um, and that's where she'll spend the rest of the war in the Philippines. And one thing that's uh, really informative about uh, our understanding of her story is you tell it in the larger context of the war for the Philippines. So um, let's leave her story for a moment and talk about what's what's been going on with the uh, commanders in terms of MacArthur, uh, the famous story of him having to leave, and then his efforts to return. And, and so if you can kind of set that, uh, set that up for us in terms of what happens to her at the end of the war. Right. Uh, well, General Douglas MacArthur was the, the commanding general of the American forces uh, when the Japanese invaded. And it was deeply humiliating to him that his troops were were ultimately going to be defeated. And when General Marshall, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in Washington, recognized that the Americans were going to be forced to surrender, they did not want MacArthur, a four-star general, to fall into Japanese hands. <clears throat> so they ordered him to leave the Philippines and go to Australia to reorganize uh, for uh, the rest of the war. And MacArthur didn't want to leave, but he did. Um, he had handled the, the, uh, the challenge of defending the Philippines very poorly, according to uh, most military historians. It made him even more committed to coming back to the Philippines to relieve them, to free them. And it took from when he left in early 1942 uh, till 
October of 1944, when Florence was arrested to launch the invasion of the Philippines in the Battle of Leyte Gulf and, and to recapture the Philippines. Um, and he wanted to relieve Manila very badly. Um, and so he sent a strike force of the 1st Cavalry Division into Manila and the surrounding area. And shortly before Florence was to be executed, the 1st Cavalry Division entered her political prison where she was being held and saved her life along with the remaining prisoners. At the time, she weighed 77 pounds. She was tall for a, a Philippine woman. She weighed 120 at the beginning of the war. She was very near death due to starvation. And she was immediately taken to a hospital uh, in Manila and, uh, and they slowly nursed her back to health. But it was a touch and go as to whether she was gonna survive. And so the war in terms of her captivity, really for her, it, it, it kind of ends with this liberation after Leyte Gulf. Uh, the war for Englehart goes on for quite some time. Um, and he is, as many of the American prisoners in the Philippines were, he is eventually going to be transported. Um, and that it's, it's a it's touch and go for him. He's, he's, you get the sense uh, from your recount that he was extremely lucky. Yeah, of the thousands of men who were transported to Japan and Korea from the Philippines, when the, when, when the Japanese knew the Philippines would eventually fall, they decided to turn the Americans who were still healthy enough into slave labor, um, both in mines in Japan and, and, uh, and also Korea. Um, yes, Engelhart was incredibly lucky because the first ship he was put on was sunk by an American, uh, an American submarine, torpedoed. Um, and he was one of the survivors of that ship. He was put on a second ship. That one was bombed and hundreds of the prisoners were, were killed. Uh, he survived that. He was put on a third ship and eventually uh, got to Japan and then to Korea where he survived the rest of the war. Uh, but uh, just yeah, an amazing survival story by 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 Carl Engelhart, which really matched what what Florence endured uh, in her efforts to try to save Engelhart and so many of his fellow prisoners. And so, what was truly uh, amazing again, my admiration for her just increased exponentially when eventually she she has a uh, aunt, she has relatives who live in Buffalo, New York. So after the war, she could have stayed in the Philippines. She comes to the United States, but that's not the end of the war for her. <laughs> so explain what she does when she gets back to the US. Yeah, she, she regained her weight. As I mentioned, she was 77 pounds when she was rescued. She slowly regained her weight. And she was then informed that there was going to be a ship that would carry Americans from the Philippines um, back to the United States. Now she had never been to the United States, the land of her father, but she was an American citizen. 
Um, and her husband was a decorated uh, officer. Uh, so she was able to qualify for one of the first ships to go back to the United States. And entirely on her own, um, you know, she, she took the ship, uh, landed in San Diego, took a train across the United States. The only relatives she knew of in the United States were her aunt and her aunt's family in Buffalo, which was Charlie Eversold's family, uh, her father's family. And she got to Buffalo and she was slowly regaining, again, regaining her strength. And she felt really like a fish out of water because she was reading about what was happening in, in, the, in the Far East with the Battle of Okinawa and the war was going on. And she had made a commitment, a silent commitment to her, her dead husband, Bing, that she would be there. She would fight the Japanese as long as she could. And in the United States at that point, they were kind of tired of the war and Detroit was gearing up for new automobiles and you know new lines of automobiles and and she felt um, that she hadn't really done enough, so she decided to volunteer for the United States Coast Guard. And her family was horrified, shocked. Her aunt Mabel, but she was committed to doing it, and so she went into the United States Coast Guard and went through training. Jack Dempsey was the head of training at, at her at her base, the former heavyweight champion of the United States. And uh, it was while she was completing her training in the Coast Guard that the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki that ended the war against Japan. And so she has this incredible story that she really, like many, uh, like we've heard, they're often referred to the greatest generation because of their uh, humility and um, the, their reticence to discuss their wartime experience for people that participated in World War II or fought in a variety of different ways. And she's one of these people who just doesn't tell anybody, as you mentioned earlier, for years. Um, so the story really, in some ways, doesn't end there. There's, there's the story of what happens much, much later with, with her children and how they learn of it. I was really surprised to um, hear about her illness and, and how she uh, deals with that. So can you explain that story briefly? Yeah, when, when the war with Japan ended, uh, Engelhart was released from his prison camp in September of 1945. And he began the journey back to the United States. He first went to the Philippines to try to follow up on all of those who he knew had been working with Florence in saving his life and the lives of hundreds of others. And he learned that just about everybody in her network uh, had been killed or died in Japanese hands. Uh, all of the people that he had served with in his intelligence group had been killed or died in Japanese hands. He came to the United States, and one of the first things he wanted to do was meet Florence just to reconnect and tell her how grateful he was. And they met in Washington, D.C., when she was so active with the Coast Guard. And 
he wondered, how did you accomplish this? How did you do it? And it was then that she told Engelhardt how she had uh, been able to divert the tons of fuel from the Japanese to the resistance, on, uh, selling it on the black market, everything she had done. And so two years later in 1947, her story was presented to uh, President Truman's commission and she was awarded the Medal of Freedom uh, by President Truman. At that point, she had met a young man named Bob Finch who had served with the Third Army under General Patton in Europe and they fell in love and she went with Bob Finch to his new job working for Agway, which was a big agricultural supply operation. And one of its points of operation was in Ithaca, New York. So they moved to Ithaca, New York. And that was where Florence spent the next 70 years of her life. She worked for Cornell University as an administrator for Professor George Cann, who, who ran the Far East Studies Department at Cornell. Um, she had her two children, uh, Betty and Bobby. Her husband died young um, in 1968 of a heart attack. <clears throat> By then she was very active in the First Presbyterian Church in Ithaca. She was elected a deacon of the church and she took great pride in mentoring younger members of the church, just as she had with younger mestizos back at the Union uh, church uh, school in Manila when she was a young woman. And she was lived a very quiet life until the Coast Guard announced that they were naming their Pacific headquarters after her. And then she became somewhat of a local celebrity. It was hard not to be with everything. When people learned what she had done and read her citation for the Medal of, of Freedom. But, uh, in 2008, she was put into a hospice program uh, with a misdiagnosis that she was going to be dying of a, of a spinal degenerative disease. And uh, she decided not to be a burden on her family. She would just simply stop eating and drinking. And she had contacted her son, Bobby, who was then running the parks division in Denver, Colorado, Parks and Recreation. And he flew to Ithaca and he said, Mom, I don't, please don't do this. And she said, I, I, I ask your blessing. I feel it's time, for, I've had a wonderful life and uh, it's time for me to end my life. And he said, well, if you're going to do that, I'm going to ask if I can videotape you, uh, which he did for the next three days and which was a great source of information for me. Um, but at a certain point, she regained her strength and her desire to live. And it turned out that she was <laughs> misdiagnosed. So she left the hospice uh, and she lived uh, for uh, until the fall of 2016, the last years in a last couple of years in a nursing home here in Ithaca and uh, right up to the end. And it's funny, I, not funny, but I, 
met people now who knew uh, Florence in the nursing home and who said she was the go-to person by the staff when someone had given up on life and was thinking about wanting to end their life or giving up, they would send Florence in to talk to them about cherishing each day and savoring each day and bringing them around. And so she was remarkable right up to the end. She certainly was. Um, you note that uh, in 1995, the Coast Guard uh, surprises her by naming their Pacific headquarters. Uh, this is in Honolulu, Hawaii, right? Correct. Yeah. And um, she's the only woman in Coast Guard history to have received the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Ribbon. And yeah, that was so, a ribbon. That was a ribbon created by General MacArthur. Uh, yeah, she's one of the most decorated women of American women of the Second World War. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just uh, amazing in this time of celebrating celebrity that she had no interest in it. Her, in her view, with her sense of humility, she felt that everyone that she had worked with in the underground who had been killed by the Japanese or died in their hands, they were the heroes, not her. So much of the history that we have come to know about World War II is sometimes told through soldiers' memoirs on the ground, uh, battlefield memoirs and recollections and interviews, uh, but also, of course, from the heights of command with the biographies of uh, uh, MacArthur and Eisenhower and other figures, political decision makers as well. But I, I must say, the, uh, you get a sense for the stories of Englehart, the POW, and um, Florence that the, these are one uh, or a couple of many stories that sometimes we will just never know. Uh, and thankfully, you've been able to tell this one, but that there are a lot of people who really helped contribute to the way the war turned out. In other words, the ultimate survivors, uh, the efforts of these people who only intermittently and sometimes not at all are recognized uh, by history. And so uh, thank goodness that you've been able to uh, tell this story. Yeah, I, you know, old politicians like me uh, have a tendency, I guess, to exaggerate things. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I must tell you that I've, I've written two non World War II nonfiction books, one about Torpedo Squadron 8 uh, at the Battle of Midway, and another about a doomed raid by the 8th Air Force over Germany. Um, and they were, they were wonderful stories, and it was a privilege to write about those men. But I must say that this is the most extraordinary story about World War II that I was lucky enough, fortunate enough to be able to research and write. Uh, on behalf of the family of Florence Finch and Colonel Engelhart, Carl Engelhart. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, such a strong, independent, and indomitable person uh, like Florence Finch was an inspiration to me. Uh, so I was glad to have the chance to write it. The book is entitled The Indomitable Florence Finch, The Untold Story of a War Widow Turned Resistance Fighter and savior of American POWs. And we've been joined today on the New Books Network with its author, Robert J. Morazic. Thanks, Robert, so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Ian, it was a pleasure. Great to meet you and 
Uh, thank you so much.